Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Woe is Media. We hope everybody has been doing well. Thank you for being patient with us as we took last week off because I was not around. I was on vacation and did not have a chance to do some research and sit down with Alyssa and record, but we're back better than ever. We're here for episode 13. Alyssa, what have you got for us? Today, we are going to be talking about a slightly older story that came out last week. Ellen DeGeneres announcing that she is no longer going to be on the daytime circuit after 19 seasons, as well as a very interesting uh, research study that I've found that talks about AAPI and API individuals in movies. Good. Well, it is AAPI Heritage Month, as it is May, so sounds like a great thing to cover. My stories this week are about AT&T selling off their media division. Sound familiar? <laughs> as Verizon did this a couple of weeks ago, AT&T is following suit. So we're going to talk about that, um, and then we're also going to talk about some pretty major changes in the consumer credit markets that are coming to big banks and who is eligible for a credit card. So Ooh. we'll get more into that going forward. Um, but yeah, that one will be a little bit more personal finance heavy, but it's something that I think is important to talk about and just hope that people understand it because it's not the most user-friendly thing to learn about, but we're going to try and make it a little bit more digestible and hopefully everyone um knows what's going on with that so yee we're here to educate the masses absolutely well the masses <laughs> i wish but <laughs> we'll get there we're going to be the masses be the masses that's right i gotta start somewhere so i'll get us started so this first story is called woe is at&t's media ha um, ha ha, ha. kind of lame of me to recycle the same title i used like two weeks ago on the verizon story but you know what you got to take advantage and brand where you can, right? I mean, you're actually titling your stories. Mine are just like, this is what's going on. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So AT&T is spinning off Warner Media and is merging all of their media assets with Discovery. So Discovery, we know, owns most of the general cable TV channels. So like A&E and TLC and HGTV and obviously the Discovery Channel where we watch Shark Week every year and all that fun stuff. So all of AT&T's media assets are now gonna be with Discovery. So this media venture, when they took on Warner Media a few years ago, it cost AT&T $93 billion over the past six years. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a whole lot of money. Um, the good news is they did a little bit better than Verizon did with their sale of their media assets, mainly because Verizon sold Yahoo and AOL. And AT&T is selling HBO, Warner Brothers, TNT, TBS, and CNN, which includes all of the Harry Potter and all of the Batman movies. So that's a much bigger list of assets. Isn't it funny how like just a few corporations own everything in this world? Yeah, a little bit, but um, yeah. So they, they sold everything to Discovery for about $43 billion. So they did significantly better than Verizon did with the $5 billion sale to the private equity group. So how it's gonna work going forward, um, the new media assets will get merged into Discover and they're expected to have a new name for the new company. Because Discovery is obviously like, it's a pretty sizable company, but it's about to get a lot bigger with all of these assets. I mean, HBO alone is tremendous. And then to get all of these cable TV channels like CNN and TNT and CBS, or not CBS, excuse me, TBS on top of it, um, that's, that's definitely going to make it bigger. So it'll have a new name um, and it'll make up the bulk of the new company, the new assets coming from AT&T. So shareholders of AT&T going forward will get 71% of whatever the name of the future merch company is. Um, and 29% will go to existing Discovery shareholders. So if you own shares in either of those companies, you're going to get shares in whatever the new one is based on that allocation. Um, so yeah, that's how that will go. Um, as we've seen kind of with the streaming wars, um, Discovery Plus has been in the game. Alyssa, do you use Discovery Plus? I don't. One of my bosses at work does, and he personally loves it, but I don't, I didn't see any 
use for it in my personal life. So I did not partake. Yeah, that was my take on it as well. I don't personally know anyone who subscribes to Discovery Plus, so you're doing better than me with your boss. But um, that's Discovery Streaming Service, and it's going to merge all of the new assets that it just got from AT&T with its existing streaming services. So it's going to be like a mega streamer with all of HBO's content on it, in addition to TLC, A&E, HGTV, all that good stuff. Um, so it'll be a lot that they kind of have under their umbrella now. Uh, Time Warner was only purchased by AT&T in 2018, and now it is with Discovery. Um, AT&T in total, with its big media ventures, it spent $152 billion between acquiring Time Warner in 2018 and acquiring DirecTV in 2015, which we now know it's mostly been uh, sold off to a PE firm, so that's not really under AT&T's umbrella anymore. But it cost them quite a lot of money. Um, as I said, it was a $93 billion loss to kind of get into this venture. And we know, apart from obviously losing the money, they've lost a lot of focus because in this time that they've been trying to become a wireless conglomerate and a media conglomerate, they have lost focus on their core competency, which is their wireless division. So they've kind of been losing steam a little bit with that. It cost them obviously the money and um, the previous CEO cost him his job. They have somebody new at the helm since those acquisitions have been made. So it was a very much a risky decision to kind of get into the media markets. And it was one that ultimately didn't pay off in the tune of $93 billion. So um, I personally- Not what you wanted, but you lost what you had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, So it's kind of copying Verizon here with doing its media sale. Um, So we're kind of seeing more of a consolidation in the streaming industry because now Netflix has such a huge scale. Disney Plus has such a huge scale because Disney also owns Hulu as well as ESPN Plus. So that's like a lot of your options that are already out there under Disney's umbrella. Um, So we're kind of seeing more of a consolidation. People can't compete with Netflix and they can't compete with Disney. Discovery Plus certainly couldn't compete. So this is a big boost for them. I think it'll kind of take them to probably second or third in the marketplace with Netflix and Disney. So now those will be like the top three players um there's no name to the new company yet that's probably going to come out sometime this week so we'll update you guys on that as we find out um and the new merge discovery whatever the name ends up being will be led by their current ceo david zoslov so here's like my personal take on all this i think this is going to be kind of the end of the streaming wars like we've seen just platform after platform pop up and fail and pop up and fail like Tubi and like Pluto and there's a bunch of like really random small ones that you know are not quite as mainstream but are still an option for people um IMDTV things like that but the big ones have always been Netflix and Hulu and Disney plus coming onto the market a couple of years ago but now with this consolidation with Discovery getting HBO I mean, HBO is kind of a juggernaut in the streaming business, and they just went through that whole transformation. I'm pretty sure it was less than a year ago with becoming HBO Max, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's very much, they have so much under their umbrella now. They've acquired a lot of shows that were on other platforms. We know they spent $400 million to acquire the rights to Friends, which... I, uh, I thought it was kind of a dumb business decision just because 400 million is a lot for a TV show that is no longer producing, but that's anyway. how I felt about when Peacock purchased back the rights to the office. Okay. Well, this is little. we'll let you guys in on a little inside joke here. Um, I don't like friends and Alyssa does, and I like the office and Alyssa doesn't. So I want to preface by saying like, I am not a major mega fan of friends, but I, whenever like it's on, if I have nothing else to do, I'll watch it. I'm not sitting here like re-watching, re-watching, re-watching. Yes, I've seen every episode, but with time, I've realized it has many, many faults, but I definitely think it's better than The Office. Y'all can hate me. Y'all can send me hate mail. I don't care. I've tried to get into Friends. I've come to the conclusion I just don't like sitcoms. I don't like people telling me when to laugh. I find that very obnoxious. I also That is absolutely fair. 
I also find all of the men on that show completely insufferable. And when we were in college, I briefly dated a man who described himself as Ross. And ever since then, oh. I, I have no desire to watch friends because i don't want to see my ex running around on there i didn't know that little piece of trivia so oh my god why didn't you tell me that to begin with we'll talk more offline about that (laughs) um, yeah he's no longer in in the picture so not an issue we got no rosses running around but um yeah anyway so at&t getting rid of hbo and giving it to discovery like holy crap discovery is gonna have so many major cable channels which whether or not you use cable TV or, you know, like the idea of it or continue, are going to continue to use it going forward. That's still a lot of channels. It's still a lot of options. And with the streaming service, I think this is really going to keep the, the streaming wars in check. Cause it'll just kind of be these three major players now. So what I would do if I were HBO and if I were, I mean, nobody's asking me obviously, but I am. <laughs> if, um, if I were, uh, David Seslov with Discovery, what I would do is, in my opinion, HBO already has the stronger content and the stronger brand recognition, right? Because yes. after acquiring Friends, and then it also has, you know, the original content of like Game of Thrones and Westworld and Sex in the City and Euphoria and all these like really, really big popular shows, as well as a bunch of movies under its umbrella too. Um, they already have the stronger content and they already have the stronger brand recognition. Nobody, at least in our generation, I feel like really cares about discovery. So what I would do, I would call the new <laughs> streaming service, HBO Supermax. Hey. So going from max to Supermax. So you have a bumped up content library with all of discovery plus this stuff in there too. Um, and yeah, I just think that's probably the strongest way to go about it. You just kind of have to leverage your best assets. Question. Mm-hmm. Is Fixer Upper or was it on Discovery or was that another channel? No, it is. It's, okay. it's HGTV. Um, so yeah, all of Chip and Joanna Gaines. That's the only reason I could see people our age like being in on um, Discovery or Discovery Plus because I know people are sluts for Chip and Joanna. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, that is a fact. Uh, they definitely have a big, big audience with a uh, hold on us. Yeah, with some people in our generation who are anxious to build homes. Um, but yeah, oh, so, not us. Not us, as we sit in our rented apartments. Um, yeah, so AT&T is going to use the sale proceeds to pay down debt, which is very responsible of them. That's what you're supposed to do. They have a lot of debt right now. They need to kind of get that down. Um, the company's name will be disclosed by next week, as we said, and Discovery has also said that they're going to spend probably up to $20 billion this year in content. So between acquiring new content and developing new content, um, there will probably be a lot more stuff to expect coming on whatever the new name for the platform will be. Hell Yeah. So we will have to see. There's no word yet what this means if you're an existing discovery plus subscriber or if you're an existing hbo max subscriber i don't know if you if like the cost per month is going to go up yet we don't know if you're going to have to like create a new account i would imagine probably not but we'll, we'll see how that goes i would imagine it would kind of go something like the transition from cbs all access to paramount plus um that is kind of another streamer in the game but we'll have to see what happens with that one um I think, especially with this acquisition, they will be hurting a little bit. That's my personal take. So you have any questions on that one before I move into my next story? Not really, just thinking about money. And how much these companies spend. And how much, how little I make. (laughs) You have to think about like, this is on the corporate level and this is so much money poured in from banks and, you know, shareholders and they these companies have been around for decades and AT&T has been around for like centuries so don't you know still bitter don't take it personally but um yeah no it's a lot of money dealing in billions instead of even thousands is quite a jump so I feel you on that one so for my next story it's called no credit no problem so 
this is where we're going to get a little bit into the personal finance stuff. Um, so this week, JP Morgan, U.S. Bank Corp, Wells Fargo, and a few other major big banks have decided that they're going to work together to start offering credit cards to people who do not have existing credit scores. So right now, generally, how it works is unless you've applied for like a student credit card or a college like starter credit card or something like that, or you do something where your parents sign on as like a co guarantor or something like that. Um, generally speaking, in order to apply for credit cards from banks like or American Express or Capital One or something like that, you have to have an existing credit score and they will judge whether or not they want to give you the card based off your credit score. So, but they've decided that they're going to do away with this and they're not going to do away with credit scores, but they are going to start offering cards to people without existing credit scores. Um, and the way that they're going to do this, they're not just going to give them out to anybody necessarily. They're going to look at basically all of your bank account data. So they're going to see if you have a savings account. They're going to see if you're regularly getting deposits from like a job or your balance is running consistently low. Do you have overdraft fees, stuff like that. So they're going to be looking at that to see if you're kind of a worthy borrower or not. And the way that they're going to do this is they've basically conformed, formed a big coalition of a bunch of banks that are all going to share data with each other. So okay. let's say I don't have a credit score and I bank with Wells Fargo and I really want to apply for a credit card with Bancor. So I go to Bancor and I'm like, hey, I want to apply for one of your credit cards. Bancor is like, okay. Wells Fargo has like a massive database of all of their financial data that Bancor will now have access to. Okay. So they will go take a look. They will see that I am employed and that I pay my rent on time and that I don't have, you know, any sketchy charges going on, nothing like that. And they'll be like, okay, sure. We will approve you for a credit card. And that's how it's going to work. So it's a big information sharing activity that's going to go on here with this. Um, so that's kind of cool to see banks work together like that. That's not really something we've seen before. That's super confidential data that banks generally keep under lock and key. So right now there's 10 banks that are currently involved. So the other good thing with this is because they're sharing the data, you don't have to get a credit card from who you primarily bank with. Okay. So you could go somewhere else, um, which is a good thing because Capital One is involved on this and their credit cards are like significantly better than some of the other banks involved on this pro tip. So. <laughs> anyway, um, so you would apply for the card, it would look at your data from the bank, um, and then it would choose, the bank would choose whether to accept your credit card application or reject it. Um, this is a good thing because 53 million Americans right now do not currently have credit scores. So this is going to boost access to credit nationwide. Okay. Um, however, I don't mean to get, well, okay, before I get into the doom and gloom, what is another positive about this is access to credit has historically been a big part of institutional racism um, because banks used to what we call redline or reject applications for loans or, cre or credit cards or mortgages based off you know demographics like somebody's race or religion or ethnicity or you know nationality um, and or even just like they would look at their zip code and be like, that's not a good area of town. You can't pay your mortgage. We're not going to give you a mortgage. Mm -hmm. um, so they would reject applications for credit based off that. Uh, and that's now illegal. As someone who works at a bank, that is something we receive a lot of training on. Um, and we absolutely do not engage in that anymore. However, as we know, when there's been centuries of oppression against a group of people, it's not going to change overnight. So a lot, no, of the, it doesn't. a lot of the 53 million people who don't have credit scores are people who don't have access to credit and are part of those minorities and demographic groups that were discriminated against because they couldn't get credit beforehand. So it's been kind of like a cyclical thing. So this is good because it is part of the fight against institutional racism and expanding credit to people who have not currently had access to it. Here's where we get into the dark side. That wasn't already the dark side? Well, it's it's like a change, you know, to like fight the institutional racism. Oh. You know, just like a little bit of one. However, here's, okay. And I'm sorry to like bring it down, but this is important. And as soon as I read this, like it just, pff, my brain exploded a little bit. Yeah. And I, we have to talk about this. Okay. So, yeah. Here's the, here's the stitch. Credit card revenue for banks meaning late fees that they collect when you don't pay your bill 
interest rates that compound when you have a balance running every month on your credit card. Mm-hmm. All of that has been significantly lower for banks in the past year since the pandemic, which is a good thing for Americans as a whole because it means they're paying down their debt. They have used any extra money that they're not spending going out or traveling. They've been using it to pay down their debt or they've been using the stimulus aid that they've received from the government to pay down their debt, which is responsible. That's what you're supposed to do if you have debt and you have extra cash lying around, pay that down. Banks aren't happy with it because that's obviously less revenue for their bottom line because they're not making those late fees. They're not making those compounding interest rates. So this is a way to create potentially more revenue on credit cards for banks, because if you open up credit to people who have not had it before and don't necessarily know what to do with it or how it works, the odds are pretty high. They're probably gonna miss some payments because they don't know what's going on. They may not understand that you have to pay, you can't run a balance every month. And if you do, you're going to have to pay interest rates on it. Interest rates on credit cards are ridiculous. Yes. They can can be in the 14 to 18% range, depending on the card that you have and the limit that's on your card. Just for reference, the prime mortgage rate in this, in this country right now is 3%. So six times higher is what you could potentially be paying on your credit card. Yeah, it's ridiculous. The credit cards, like it, you have to be so careful with them because if you do not use them responsibly, you will get screwed out of a lot of money. So I, I caution people with this because I don't like the idea of banks preying on people who don't understand how credit works and how applying for credit works and how a credit score works I, I don't like the idea of them preying on that just so they can make more money on their bottom line. It's just, it's not, it's not good. Um, and this is scary because it's also, even though this is supposed to be part of the fight against institutional racism, um, financial literacy in this country sucks. Like people, like generally speaking, don't have the best understanding of how a lot of this stuff works, like credit cards, or bank accounts, Alyssa, are you one of those people who you don't yes, feel like- that, Yeah, that's why I'm raising my hands. Yeah, and it's, and it's unfortunate because it's kind of gatekept. Like the people who do have really strong financial knowledge and understanding of like how to save and how to do a credit card and how to invest and all that stuff, it stays in the same families. Like the people who understand it, they just pass it down to their kids and it doesn't really expand. And like a lot of people who have the knowledge are already wealthy and a lot of times white. So it's kind of like the white rich getting richer. And that's why the disparity has been, that's one reason why the wealth disparity in this country has gotten really bad because financial literacy sucks. So what we're gonna do to talk a little bit more about this is kind of dive into more of an understanding of it. Cause we want, like I personally am very passionate about helping people understand business and understanding finance and money. That's part of why Alyssa and I started this podcast I like to help our friends invest. I One of our best friends, Hannah, she always texts me questions about like credit cards and stuff like that. And she and I will go over applications and stuff together and like look at the benefits and stuff like that. This is something I like to help people with. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today and like highlight it a little bit more. Um, so as I said, I'm worried about this because banks could, you know, they get greedy and they could take advantage of unknowing consumers. Um, and credit card debt is like already a pretty big issue in this country, not quite to the extent of like student debt, but there's definitely a savings crisis in this country because people, yes. they spend more than they have and they don't save appropriately. Um, and they take out credit because they got to pay their bills, but then they can't pay back the credit because as we know, credit cards are not free money. An <laughs> endless just, cycle. Yes. It's a vicious cycle. Um, So I'm just going to give like a slight crash course on kind of how this works here. So a credit card is obviously not free money. When you swipe it, you are promising the credit card company that you were going to pay back that amount in a timely manner. Yes. Um, What's nice is you don't have to immediately pay it. It's, it can help your cash flow. Let's say you only get paid once a month or something and you get paid at the end of the month. You can use your credit card to make purchases 
and it'll clear with all the places you're doing business with, which is a good thing because all of those are taken care of. However, the actual money has not left your bank. And because you're waiting to get paid, you can't actually pay those yet. That's when yeah. a credit card would come in handy. Um, but my advice with this is to just be super responsible. Uh, make sure you do your research on the credit cards that you're potentially applying for. Look at the benefits, look at the fees, look at the interest rates. Um, it's also important to set monthly reminders like on your calendar and your phone or something like that for when your balances are due. It's usually going to, it's going to be the same every month, but if you have multiple credit cards or if you have other like deadlines of like when rent is due and when your phone payment or your car payment or whatever, no one can keep track of that. That's ridiculous. There's so many different due dates. Mm -hmm. It's never all the same thing. So my advice, set monthly reminders in your phone for when to pay off your balances. Set one two days before, set one the day of, and set one like one day before, just so you have plenty of options. Yes, what you got? How do you feel about setting up recurring payments for these bills that you can do? Like on do the you, credit cards? Yeah, on credit cards, on rent, on car payments, stuff like that. I think that's like a good idea. I think it's one of the best ways to simplify your personal finances is to put things on auto pay because then you don't have to worry about keeping up with a bunch of deadlines. Mm -hmm. That being said, the that's really only something you can do if you keep enough cash on hand to, you know, keep all of those payments going without getting overdraft charges and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I like the idea of doing monthly recurring charges. Like for example, I put my cell phone payment on one of my credit cards and I just, I have my monthly reminder set and I just go in and I pay it off every month and that works for me. I think it is a good way because you want to have a little bit of revolving utilization on your credit card. Um, so having like a good monthly charge, whether it be rent or your, you know, your cell phone, your car payment, whatever, that's that's not a that's not a bad option at all. So yeah, I think I think that's definitely something worth doing if you have the cash on hand to pay it off. Um, I think it's also important to kind of use the credit card for things you were already going to buy. So groceries, gas, or like really small purchases. Like if you're going to go grab a latte or an ice cream or something like that. Like it's what three three fifty something like that. You know you can afford that. You would know more than I. Use your credit card for that um, because you know you're going to pay it back. It's not going to be a big a deal to pay it off. Um, and what I find also like worrisome about this is because it seems like alarmingly similar to what happened back in 2008 with the mortgage crisis. Yes. What, what happened then was, and this was only part of the picture, um, but banks were really getting greedy. They were making a ton of money selling mortgage bonds. So they wanted to sell as many mortgages as possible. So they were giving out mortgages to people who have no business having a mortgage. Mm -hmm. They did not have a credit score. They did not have any income. They did not have any job verification, things like that. These people were taking out mortgages for $100,000 homes and higher and guess what? They defaulted and the banks lost billions of dollars and the U.S. government had to bail them out. And this could potentially happen th with these credit cards without credit scores as well, because if standards inevitably slip and people who have no business paying off 18% and compounding interest every month, you know, they're going to default and there will be losses and it could just, it, it could be a nightmare. Um, I really hope it doesn't get to that. I do hope that it just has, you know, the positive effect of expanding credit to people who do need it, but don't historically have access to it. Um, things like that. But I just, I found that to be a little scary, the parallel to the 2008 crisis. So do your research. Um, quick crash course here on how credit scores work. So if you do decide, if you don't already have one and you do decide to kind of take this approach to get a credit card so you can start generating a credit score. This is kind of how it works. So it is a score generated by how much of your line of credit that you tend to use. So if you have a thousand dollar limit on your credit card, if you're spending a hundred bucks on it every month, that's 10% utilization, something like that. And you tend to want to keep utilization below 30%. That's a good benchmark. So whatever the limit on your card is, try not to spend more than 30% because then they'll freak out a little bit. 
Um, so that's part of it. It's how much you're using on your line of credit. Um, are you making payments on time or are you missing them? How many lines of credit you have? So if you have a mortgage, if you have student loan payment, a car payment, and like two credit cards, that'd be five lines of credit, which is a reasonable large amount. Like some people have less, some people have more. It's okay to have more um, as long as, again, you're responsible with it and can keep on track with all of it. Um, and obviously you can need multiple lines of credit for different things. Like your credit card is not really something that goes along with your mortgage payment. <laughs> so it's okay to have multiple um, as long as you're able to manage it. Um, so how many lines of credit you have and your average age of credit. So what's annoying is when you do take out a credit card, your credit score, if you do already have one, is going to go down because it affects your overall age of credit because you have, let's say, two accounts. One's worth, one's been around for three years, one's been around for one year. Your average age would be two, but then you have another credit card you just opened that's going to bring the age down significantly. So that's kind of what a credit score takes into account. And the higher your score is, the more desirable you are to lend to. So the range of credit scores, it's generally from 300 to 850. So if you're in like that 750 and higher range, your credit is considered excellent. Um, anywhere in like the mid 600s is considered good and anything below that is like average, poor, so on and so forth down the line. Um, and having a good score is important because it'll help you get better interest rates. Like if you're trying to take out a mortgage or a car loan or something like that, you will ultimately save more money if you have a good credit score, because you won't be paying as much in interest. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a good thing. Um, so to kind of summarize all of this up, more access to credit is a good advancement against institutional racism, so long as banks do their due diligence on someone's bank data, and they're making sure that their standards for who they want to lend to and improving credit cards remain tight. And I hope I don't come across as like elitist with all this because I promise I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to gatekeep credit. I just don't want the banks to, eventually you lend credit cards to everyone who should in theory be eligible. So who's left? The people who probably shouldn't be eligible. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in 08. I hope the same thing does not happen here. So proceed with caution. If you guys ever have any questions about credit or personal finance in general, our email is in the description of this podcast. So you can definitely reach out to us there, but yeah. Annabelle will be the one advising you. I will be the one standing on the sidelines, smiling widely. Like I know what she's talking about. <laughs> That's right. So, but if you have any entertainment questions, Alyssa can definitely help you with those. So absolutely. Or, you Speaking know, cultural questions. If you need help learning Korean, I can help you on that too. How you feel about uh, Butter, BTS's new single? Oh, we don't even get me started. <laughs> all right, Alyssa, all you. All right, so today, not really today, last week, we learned that an era is ending. Whether or not you are a fan of the era, is disputed, but Ellen DeGeneres announced on May 12th that she is ending her daytime talk show after 19 seasons, quote, because, because it's just not challenging anymore, unquote. Now, from what we've learned from various media outlets, she planned on ceasing production of the television show after season 16 in June of 2019, but then they were like, no, just do like a few more years and like, we'll be good. And she was like, all right, you know, I ain't got anything else to do. No tea, no shade. But since its inception in 2003, specifically September 8th, 2003, the show has been nominated for 171 daytime Emmys and it has won 61. It surpassed Oprah Winfrey's show record for awards in the outstanding talk show category. And it has become well-known for Ellen's dance breaks, giveaways, and various viral moments. Mm -hmm. Now, recently, as recent as 2020, there were allegations arising of toxic work environment atmospheres mm -hmm. around the Ellen DeGeneres show, as well as some sexual harassment claims 
by producers and whatnot. So this news was initially broken, I believe, by BuzzFeed News. And the majority of the people that they talked to were former employees. I believe they talked to one current and 10 former, and they were all anonymous. So don't worry, no one, I hope, got fired because of participating in this tell-all. A subsequent report that followed this initial report claimed 36 anonymous former workers reported, quote, harassment, sexual misconduct, and assault from top producers of the show, unquote. Mm. No bueno. No bueno at all. So, you know, you would think this show is very well known for being light, fun, and airy. It doesn't often tackle very serious topics. So this is a very shocking you know, accusation to make because you would think like, oh, working on the Ellen DeGeneres show seems like so much fun, but apparently not. In her response to these allegations, DeGeneres has come out as saying it is, quote, hilarious, unquote, and, quote, also stupid, unquote. I'm sorry about all the quotes, unquotes, but I don't want to, you know, misquote anyone or get into a libel suit. But... So an investigation ensued because of all these claims and three executives left the show. We don't know if they were fired. We don't know if they left on their own accord because of things that were found or they just got tired of being on the show. But now Ellen DeGeneres is saying that her own personal issues that she may have had with employees working on the show might have been because of what she claims as, once again, quote, introverted nature being misinterpreted mm-hmm. and i'm going to stop my little editorial for a second to just say that i know dozens and dozens of introverted individuals and there is a very specific difference between being introverted and being rude yeah that seems like a poor excuse to me absolutely that's just our personal opinion Being rude is an attitude. Being introverted is how you get your energy. Like they're not really correlated. I would get, I wouldn't think. Exactly. And I completely understand, you know, the argument of having an on camera persona versus an off camera persona. But at the same time, when you're as popular as she is and you have this platform where you're known as being light, bubbly, fun, dancing around the place, you know, you need to at least make an effort to show that same type of attitude to your employees as you would your guests. You have a responsibility. Yeah, I think so too, to kind of provide a good environment um, for everyone because you do have all that power. Yes. So according to the New York Times, the show lost 1.1 million viewers post allegations. Wow. And this is my own fault, but I didn't look up how much they average on a weekly basis because it is a Monday through Friday show. But I don't feel that 1.1 million is very significant. Like, I, I don't think that really played into the show ending, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> so Ellen, since announcing the show's end, she has already announced that she's working on new projects, including four, count them, four, one, two, three, four, ha, do, set, ha, sorry. Uh, four series with HBO Max. Soon to be on by Discovery. Yes. So I want a series. Yeah. I wanted to see like exactly what kind of series these were. And these are the best descriptions I could personally find. Once again, I didn't do like deep, deep, deep research because I had other things to do. Me and Annabelle both work full-time jobs, guys. So sorry if our research is a little lackluster. So we have a design competition in the works. Now, when they say design, I don't know if they mean clothing design. I don't know if they mean interior design. I don't know if they're trying to do an exhibit and pimp my ride kind of design show, but yeah, design show. (laughs) Okay. So to be determined what they're designing. Yeah. So we also have a matchmaking series, which is supposedly going to take place in a hotel, I believe. 
And I think like you go into like maybe like the restaurant or the lobby of the hotel and you go on like speed dates and whatnot. And then if you guys hit it off, you can stay at the hotel, like not trying to insinuate anything and just get to know each other better. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. You could read each other poetry. We love it. Um, We also have the Little Ellen animated kids show. Okay. And last but not least, we have a Finding Einstein docuseries, which is described as basically going around, I believe, just the country of the United States. I don't think it's going to be global, but going around the country and finding child prodigies, so to speak. Okay. And seeing like their processes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as I can tell, the design competition show, as well as the Little Ellen animated kids show, are the only two so far that I found that Ellen is going to be directly involved in. Like, okay. I don't know if she's going to be the host of the matchmaking show or if she's going to be like the narrator of the docu series, but so far she is involved in two out of four directly. Okay. So. so she could be like a producer or something like that on the other, yeah. like giving money. Mm-hmm. having like some sort of influence with what goes on but not like the actual director okay yeah kind of like how harry and megan you know they have that deal with netflix but they're not right. like obviously going to be in every single show that they produce they may be in a few like the Invict- invictus games uh series i believe um but other than that they're kind of just in the background right so that's pretty much all i have for the ellen DeGeneres series because I really just wanted to focus more on my next story coming up. Annabelle, do you have any thoughts or any like memories of Ellen? Nothing super major. Like I've always, I liked it when she hosted the Oscars. I thought that was fun. Um, I don't watch daytime talk shows. No tea, no shade to Ellen. I just like don't. I yeah. don't have much of an interest in that. I also have a job, so I don't have time to watch mm-hmm. daytime TV. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not loving the fact that she still has like all these opportunities that will no doubt be very lucrative for her mm-hmm. when there was obviously negative stuff going on at the Ellen show. And just because you're the host doesn't necessarily mean you're responsible for everything going on. Absolutely. But I don't know. It it seemed to me like she was slightly dismissive of what was going on behind the scenes at the Ellen show. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just hope there's no repeat offenses on these new shows. That's all I have to say about that. I hope not either. I liked her in Finding Dory, though. Yes, she was great in the Finding Nemo series. Um, But personally, I've never been a huge fan of Ellen. I don't watch her show, like you said. Um, I have a full-time job, but at the same time, I have a night shift job. So I do have time during the day to watch daytime television. I don't. There's other things to watch. (laughs) There is so much other things to watch. Like I had a How It Really Happened marathon last week. Oh, it was great. But... I honestly, over the past few years, I've just not been a really big fan of how Ellen conducts herself. And, you know, she is a really good example of, you know, just because you identify as LGBTQ doesn't mean that you're liberal. And I'm not saying that as in like a derogatory way, like boo Ellen for being, maybe being conservative. I'm just saying that a lot of people tend to believe that those two things are mutually exclusive and they're not, you know, that's, that's very wrong of people to assume that all LGBTQ people identify as the same thing where everyone is so multifaceted and they have a right to express themselves however they see fit. So I just, I, while I may not agree with everything that Ellen does, I do appreciate her being an example of that and showing Mm -hmm. people that those two things don't always go together. Mm -hmm. And it obviously takes a lot of courage to be out publicly when you have that big of a following so that's that's definitely cool too that she was never never embarrassed or ashamed of her sexuality and there's no reason for her to be very hard i'm working on my following okay (laughs) so 
this next story that I have for you, I found once again through my best friend, Entertainment Weekly, because the headline caught me way off guard. It's a story by Rachel Yang, which (laughs) the headline reads as follows. API movie study finds two thirds of characters are stereotypes, comma, one third of leads are played by Dwayne Johnson. Wait, really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Dwayne Johnson, no wonder that caught your eye. Absolutely, of course it did. Um, Also, just because the statistics are incredible. And he's responsible for a third of the leads. Yes. That's wild. Um, It's over a specific amount of time, but still. Um, So this study that Rachel Yang cites in her article is titled The Prevalence and Portrayal of Asian and Pacific Islanders Across 1300 Popular Films. It was conducted by USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. And the main players in the research done for this study include Dr. Nancy Wang Yun, Dr. Stacey L. Smith, Dr. Catherine Piper, or Peeper, I'm not sure it has an E in it, Mark Chavetti, Kevin Yao, and Dana Din. And those are all names that are included in the USC Inclusion Initiative. Mm-hmm. So, and there are other people that were involved as well, but these are the main players, basically. Okay. Um, this study was also funded by Amazon Studios and the UTA Foundation. And for the love of me, I can't remember what UTA stands for right now, so I'll figure it out. I'm also going to leave a link to this study in the description for the episode because I downloaded the document. Like, it's fully, like, you can research it. It's a PDF. You can go in and look at all the charts and whatnot by yourself because obviously I can't sit here and tell you every single detail that was included in this study, but I can give you a few of the headlines and examples that personally caught my eye. Mm -hmm. So this study looked at examples of stereotypes from movies from 2007 to 2019 primarily and found that a lot of, you know, API characters are portrayed as stereotypes and a few of the examples that they gave off the back were Pramesh Singh from the new live action Dumbo. Anyone seen it? Uh, Have you? No. (laughs) I love the first Dumbo as problematic as it is but I wasn't really feeling the vibe of the new one. I've been trash about watching the new remakes that Disney has done. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I watched Beauty and the Beast and then I kind of fell off the cliff after that. So I haven't seen a- I wonder why. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Yet again, with Alyssa's hatred for the remake, but. We'll get into it one day. Also, they had issue with the portrayal of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Did you see that film? I'm not, no. I would like to give- a little bit of credit back to the gentleman who portrayed Bruce Lee in this film. He was not an actor before this film. This is his debut in film. He's like a martial arts instructor from, I believe, Minnesota or Michigan. And this being his first film and it being such a high profile film to begin yeah, with, you know, it, you know, I, I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt for that, but also it also, it has to go back to direction, you know, just because you have an API person playing an API role doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to be multifaceted and not portray a stereotype. We can dream, but it doesn't always mean it because they may be being directed by white people who don't understand the plights of the people. Right. So, The top 25 plus percent of API characters in the top 2019 films died by the end of the movie. Oh, goodness. And over 41% experienced disparagement in like their storyline. Like they experienced like racism. Um, Six were racist and sexist slurs. Okay. Here. All but one of those deaths that I mentioned before was violent. Ooh. Yes. So no one just died in their sleep or anything like that? Maybe one. 
maybe one person like died off screen in their sleep, but everybody else were um, taken out very viciously. 5.9% of the characters in the top 1300 films between, I believe once again, 2007 and 2019 were API. So only 5.9%. 2019 alone had 8.4% of API characters represented, but that in itself was a downgrade from the year before in 2018, which had 9.6% represented. Okay. Okay. Sorry, these are a lot of numbers that I'm throwing at you and I apologize. Okay. Quick comment on the, like what the characters go through. It, I don't know, like sometimes you do have to kill off your main character or any character. And sometimes you do have to make them go through Yes. Something negative for the advancement of the plot. But it is interesting that they were all violent deaths with the exception of one. Yes. Are you familiar with the concept of fridging? No, I don't think so. What's that? Okay, so it's mainly used in like comic books as well as comic book films to describe the deaths of the female love interest to push forward the character of the male superhero. And that's what I thought of when... I, when you said that just now, as well as when I was reading this study, Gwen Stacy yeah. in the Spider-Man film, okay. like she did not have to die. Like exactly. she could have fully just lived and they could have broken up, but no, she had to die a violent death. Yeah. Like God forbid you keep your female around and have her play some sort of contribution to the saving of whatever, but yeah. exactly. They're doing the same thing with AAPI people. Yes. So now we're going to go into the statistics for API leads as well as co-leads. Excuse me. 44 films with API leads and co-leads were driven by 22 individual actors who worked one or more times as the protagonist. Wow. Okay. Just 22 people. Just 22. Six of these were women, but they were portrayed by just four actresses. Okay, so not a lot of like new diversity talent. in casting. The same yes. people. So we had Constance Wu, who appeared in two films between the this timeline. Haley Steinfeld, which appeared in who appeared in two films, which I know a lot of you may be thinking, Haley Steinfeld's Asian. She uh, has Filipino blood. I did not know that. But know. she does, in fact, pass as a white woman. Right. Um, Ali'i Cravalho was represented in one film, as well as Chloe Bennett was portrayed in one film. And Ali'i and Chloe, I don't know for certain, but I did a little bit of background search, and I do believe these are most likely referring to animated films. And while both of these animated films, Moana and Over the Moon, their characters that they were portraying were API by themselves, which is great. We need more representation in the animated field, but it also kind of sucks because you don't get to see. To see them, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I remember um, when Moana came out, you and I were talking about this. There, I don't remember what award show it was, but how do you say her name? Ali? Ali? Ali. Ali'i, thank you. Ali'i was at an award show and everyone was like, oh, Moana, Moana. And she's like, no, my name is Ali'i. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, no, no one remembers her for her as an actress. And like, that can sometimes be tough when you're maybe not as established and you're just a voice actor, at least for the time being. But yeah, they, they weren't really giving her credit as an actress. It was just the character. Yes, absolutely. And I believe um, I don't know if this is the same interview that you're referring to, but I remember watching an interview with her and Dwayne Johnson, because obviously they started Moana together and everybody knew his name, but everybody kept calling her Moana and she called them out. She was like, everybody calls him by his name. Why can't y'all call me by mine? Yeah. It's really yeah. not that hard. My name's Ali Cravalho. Just because he's the more established actor doesn't mean she doesn't deserve her name to be said. Exactly. Okay. So once again, 22 individual actors were portrayed as leads in 44 films with API co-leads. Compare this. Are you ready? No. To 336 unique white male actors that served as leads and co-leads. Across the same time span, obviously. But. Oh my goodness, that's insane. Mm -hmm. And this ratio is also worth noting. Um, with all this 
um, statistics, that would make about 84 white males for every one API female. That's absurd. Or the other way around. I've never been good with ratios, but you know. Okay, so next part. (laughs) I know, I'm just like really bringing us down right quick. But it's so interesting because no one ever thinks about these things unless it's API month, you know, we need to think about this year round. So now we're going to go into just speaking and named characters Mm -hmm. API um, individuals were portrayed as. So 63% were male, 37% were female. 59% did not depict a single API female speaking at all. Oh my goodness. Like they may be in the film, but they're in the background. They don't get a name. They don't get any lines. They're just there. Hmm. It's also worth noting that API individuals are more likely to be hypersexualized, at least for the women. In fact, sorry, going to get on this tangent right quick. API females are always hypersexualized and API males tend to be like stripped of any sexuality. Yeah, they're very like stern, mm-hmm. intense. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And you don't often get to see, you know, like a API male sex symbol in films as an actor or as a character. Like, right. honestly, it's sad that I can't think of anyone other than Henry Golding in yeah. Crazy Rich Asians right. and Dwayne Johnson. Those, Those are the two I was thinking of, yeah. The only two because, and it's it's also really interesting because I've done research about this as well, but this view of how API men are not seen as like sexual beings like the women are, it also plays into a huge amount of machismo energy in the API community. And it also plays into domestic abuse and domestic violence because, you know, they feel like they they don't feel, I'm losing my words, but you know, they don't feel represented as sexual creatures, which we all are, you know, so they get angry angry and they take it out on their partners. Okay. Sorry, I get very upset about this. Okay, now we're going to break it down by a little bit more demographics. 5.9% of these individuals shown in the 1300 films from 2007 to 2019 were Native American or Pacific Islanders. East Asian and Indian individuals dominated this area. Like it's mostly um, like China, sorry, China, Korea, Japan, India. These are all the main players when it comes to representation. Southeast Asians only accommodated for 13.3%. And that would mean, you know, like Laos, the Philippines. um, God, I'm blanking now. I don't know if Thailand falls into that category. I'm not sure. Cambodia. Thank you. Oh my God. I'm sorry. I apologize, everybody. Um, (laughs) I just, I don't. (laughs) What? There's a lot of countries in Asia. There is a very many, but I just want to make sure that they're all seen and heard because that's what this, this is for. Okay. So over 600 films from 2014 to 2019 Only 15 API characters were depicted as LGBTQ and 26 API characters were shown with physical, cognitive, or communicative disabilities. Hmm, Okay. So once again, we're like, this is, this is intersectional. Yeah. We're not only mad because of races and ethnicities being represented. We're mad about sexualities as well as, you know, able people and people that live with disabilities because it's very important that everyone is depicted in movies because it's been shown that if children see it they'll be more likely to be nicer in the future and not hold any prejudices and it also means a lot for the kids that you know may fall into any of these categories because they are like oh you know that's me up there so it helps destigmatize it too absolutely sorry I'm almost done this one was a long story but no, it's a good one. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six categories I'm going to go over really quickly. And this is a representation spectrum. 39% of API characters were invisible. 
uh, between 2007 as well as 2019, which meant 507 films had no speaking API characters at all. 75% of these films had silenced characters, which means like, you know, tertiary APIs between 2018 and 2019, for example, spoke five lines or less. Mm -hmm. And examples that they gave were Ariki and X-Men Dark Phoenix. Okay. I haven't seen any, either of those films, so I can't speak from experience, but I believe them. You know what I was thinking of, and this is like older than I think the, the study that they did, but when I think of like stereotypical AAPI characters, I think of um, the mom and daughter combo in Freaky Friday who own that Chinese restaurant. Yes. The, the mom is like, oh, this quote unquote crazy Chinese lady who's just exactly. trying to like curse everybody. And the other one is the daughter's just trying to like hustle and get the business and stuff yes. like that. And it's very much like, and they dress in like, you know, traditional clothing, traditional Chinese garb. Yeah. And they run a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco and Chinatown. And the, the mother does not have many lines. And most of them, mm-hmm. I think, if any, are all in Chinese. So it's like the, the viewer cannot appreciate what she's saying, probably. Absolutely. And it's not to get too personal about my life, but it's very, it's very sad that people don't understand how family dynamics work in other cultures. Like I know an individual that I have worked with that he is Asian American and he lives with his pam- family. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, during the pandemic, obviously had to do Zoom meetings and whatnot. And his mom every now and then would like pop up in the background because she just wanted to see what was going on. And I heard like people at my workspace, like talking about it. And obviously I can't, you know, pop in and be like, Hey, that's not okay. Because they're older than me, even though I should have, but it's just fucked up. Cause it's like, you don't understand how other people live their lives and you shouldn't you know, draw judgments because of it. And like a lot of people moved in with their parents during the pandemic. Absolutely. How would you pay rent when you're sitting at home working from your kitchen table? Yeah. God forbid a mother wants to know exactly what her son is doing on a day-to-day basis. I don't know. It just pissed me off. But anyways, sorry. Okay. 67% of these characters were stereotyped, reflecting many tired tropes like the perpetual foreigner, Like when they say perpetual foreigner, the best example, even though he doesn't fall into the API world was Fez from that 70s. That's a great example. Mm -hmm. Fez. And it's, it's interesting because I, what? Isn't that what he would always do? He'd go, Oh yeah. Well, it's funny because I love that 70s show and I was doing like research about it when I was like watching it. And I found out that Fez doesn't have an actual name in the show and it turns out fez f-e-s stands for foreign exchange student piss me off anyways 30 percent of these characters were tokenized or isolated and that just means the apis were the only one in their film or scene like you have one person that identified as asian or pacific islander in one scene Mm -hmm. and this could be seen in like Tanner from Booksmart or Alexa in like 47 meters down uncaged. I've seen Booksmart, but I haven't seen 47 meters down, but can, can confirm. Mm -hmm. 20% were seen as the sidekick or villain of their respective movie. And they pointed out my baby, my sweet baby boy, Ned Leeds in Spider-Man Far From Home and Billy Freeman in Dr. Sleep. So if, um, if Jacob Badalone is listening, I'm a very big fan of you and I think you're adorable and precious and I want to hug you because you're great. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> but now the last final, what's the word? Category? Yes, thank you, sorry. 13% <laughs> of API characters were seen as fully human and had a full spectrum of relationships with their respective characters and co-stars as well as just you know you know everything that's going on with them they're not one-dimensional they're fully complex and they have you know motivations emotions fears things like that so the examples that they gave hmm 13 percent yes actual people (laughs) yes 
Um, the examples that they gave were obviously Dr. Eddie Bravestone in Jumanji, The Next Level, played by my husband, Wayne The Rock Johnson, and Jake Malik from Yesterday, that movie about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Um, obviously, all of these stats that I'm giving you are about people on camera, and the statistics are even worse for APIs that want to work behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So over 1300 films, only 3.5% were directors and no API woman received sole directing credits for any of these films counted or well for the live action film across top grossing films from 2007 to 2019. I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot, but it's just like There's so much statistics and there's a lot to get along. And this is why, you know, Chloe Zhao winning for Nomadland was such a big deal, especially, you know, being proud of where she comes from and not really giving in to the Hollywood stereotypes. Like I loved that she showed up to the Oscars with her hair in braids, no makeup on, wearing sneakers, just being like, yeah, I'm that bitch. Get Mm -hmm. into it. Yeah. And I'm still going to sweep all you guys every single category not really but like you know the big ones but yeah that's the majority of what i found from this study and once again i'll link it in uh the description of this episode because it's a very interesting read and i highly encourage you all to look into it so that is all i have for this week all right awesome well thank you guys for joining us again this week thank you for being patient with us for taking last week off i thought we were going to be able to make it work work was kind of busy so i could not do something during the day and Alyssa and i do not have the best schedules in terms of overlap because night shift and day shift. So thank you for your patience and thank you for listening this week. We will be back next week. Oh, quick update before we go on the story I talked about two weeks ago with the trial with Apple and Epic Games. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, did end up testifying. So, and they are expected to reach a verdict sometime this week. So that'll probably wrap up. So that'll probably be one of my stories next week is what's going to go on with the app store and Epic games and see if they get their vengeance. So yes. All right. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you. Everybody go stream butter. Bye.